it's fitting that this morning is the Advent week of joy and to have our kids on stage and the little angel wings and our cameras out and uh, what a wonderful thing it is to see the joy on the, their faces and also just as you think about these next few weeks, so much of our joy is lived out through their eyes and seeing things as a child sees them uh, opening things up and a child's excitement. Uh, and so as we as we step into the last bit of our Sermon on the Mount this morning, I, I want to maybe have that be our picture, that childlike wonder, that excitement, because sometimes when we get into Jesus' instructions, uh, especially with the Sermon on the Mount, this idea that, that there is there is a deeper obedience that Jesus is calling us to. Sometimes obedience just sounds like a bunch of rules. Sometimes obedience just sounds like, I'm already given 100%. Why does it seem like every time uh, I open up Scripture, it's asking for 110%. It's asking for more than what I'm doing. I can't do any more. Uh, and, and so the call is, is not to do more. The call is to receive more fully. Uh, what Jesus has done for us. And so we're, we're going to be in Matthew chapter uh, 7 this morning. Uh, for those of you maybe who haven't been here for every week of this series, I just want to remind you uh, where we've been. Matthew chapter 1 and 2 uh, up on the sign are represented by the little uh, manger scene, the little crib in the, in the star, the arrival of Jesus, humble, unspectacular in every way, shape, or form. Uh, Matthew chapter 3 then is Jesus baptism. And, and some of you remember that Jesus is baptized. John says, no, 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 no. You should be baptizing me. Jesus says, uh, do what I say. Um, and, and then uh, Jesus is baptized. And as he comes out of the water, uh, we hear the voice of the Lord saying, this is my beloved son. Uh, translation, he rocks. And so uh, the idea here is if you're a spiritual window shopper, if you're a religious person, uh, Jesus has come to do something, and you need to pay attention to him. And so the voice of the Lord uh, makes that prominent. Pay attention to Jesus. Forget what you've always done. Pay attention to Jesus. Forget your family tradition. Pay attention to Jesus. Then Matthew 4, Jesus goes in uh, to the temptation. And, And for those of us who just can so relate to that perpetual sense of attack, of temptation. The enemy is just always crouching, always near, always uh, ready to strike. Um, Jesus endures the temptation and, and says there is hope for each and every one of us. Sin does not have to have mastery over us. And then he gets into uh, Matthew 5, and that begins the Sermon on the Mount. And, and with this Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus is really giving his followers this course syllabus of sorts of what is necessary, what is expected as a Christ follower, what is the DNA of a Christ follower. So if you're someone here who's kind of new to following Jesus, if you're someone here who really trying to make sense of things, uh, chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7 is a great thing just to read over and over this lengthy discourse from Jesus. What does it mean to be a Christ follower? What does it mean to be called into a deeper obedience? Um, again, as we think about obedience, we think we think rules. And that's something that we have to unwire, unprogram. And so think about the, the joy that you saw on a, on a child's face. Um, maybe a different uh, example that might make that clear to you. Uh, think, about, um, think about someone who has a, 
a drug or an alcohol addiction and think about the enslavement. And we wouldn't call that person free. We would say they're, they're trapped, they're enslaved, they're in bondage. It, it owns them, it controls them, it destroys what is good in their life. It keeps them from the good that they want to do in life. The um, um, Addiction Center uh, for America says there's 21 million Americans that suffer from at least one or more uh, substance abuse problems. And, and so we just know what that enslavement looks like. And it's touched so many of our families. And so the picture that we want to paint as we get into Jesus' instruction is in a way that we desire an addict to be set free from this thing that has held them. That's what Jesus is describing. This path, this journey with Jesus is this path to freedom. And so in the same way, an addict might be delivered from that and then free to go and do the good things that he or she has wanted to do but has not been able in Christ when we are set free. We are set free to go and to do the good things that we have wanted to do but have not been able because sin no longer has mastery over us. It's not just a bunch of rules. Uh, and so we're on a spiritual journey. And the first point this morning is that a spiritual journey requires spiritual tools. A spiritual journey requires spiritual journey tools. And this is really good news for us because it tells us that the best version of us possible, the most disciplined, most devoted, most strongest willpower, the best version of ourselves is not up to the spiritual task without God. And so fortunately for us, he says, ask. I've got what you need. If you're a sportsman, if you're an outdoors person, Cabela's has what you need, right? If you're on the journey with the Lord, the Father has everything that we need. And you don't need, you don't need a debit card. Matthew chapter 7, uh, pick it up with me in verses 7 through 11. We're going to end, get through the rest of this chapter, uh, but we'll just start with 7 through 11 uh, at the moment. Jesus says this, ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened to you, for everyone who asks receives, everyone, the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened, or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone, or if he asks him for a fish, will he give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask of him? And so maybe some of you read this verse when you were 16 and you said, God, I, I want a truck. I'm asking. I'm not finding. God, where is it? I want a truck with big tires and a lift. And here's what I want, God. Uh, what's the deal? Some of you maybe at one point said, God, here's the person I'm supposed to marry. I mean, you know it, God. You haven't shown it to me yet, but I'm pretty sure it's going to happen. God, make it happen. Uh, I'm asking God, find. Uh, some of you ha- have prayed uh, with, for a specific job. I'm knocking, Lord. I'm knocking on the doors. Open the door. You said, if I knock, you will open. Uh, and so what is not happening here is Jesus is not teaching his followers how to put together a Christmas wish list uh, for Santa that they could submit to uh, sort of Santa God, so to speak, and, and he would do everything. In the context of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus is drawing our attention to how we receive what is necessary for life and godliness. And Jesus is specifically and emphatically making the point that prayer is effective. That prayer is effective. How do we do this journey with the Lord? 
how are we supposed to go on this deeper obedience and not just feel like it's an enormous weight, an impossible journey, something that we can't do? To daily depend on the Lord, to daily take our requests to him. Um, it's interesting because we, we tend to twist this passage a bit and we tend to make it about God is supposed to do for me everything that I want him to do. God owes me answers to all of my questions and provisions to all of my needs and solutions to all of my problems. He owes that to me. It says it right here. And and so even the way that we twist that helps us to see something that is ugly inside of us, whereby we often find ourselves wanting temporary provisions more than spiritual provisions. We often finding ourselves wanting things more than we want God's presence. And so just even the way that we're inclined to see this text uh, reminds us of what is broken inside. But fortunately, everything we need, the Father has and he gives, as James 1 says, uh, generously. What happens when we go to the Lord in prayer? Here's a few things. We rightly recognize that we need him more than answers. So when we come to the Lord in prayer, we rightly recognize that we need him more than just answers to our problems. We also rightly recognize that he has power over all things. If you have a problem at work, you go to a supervisor who has power over that area at work. That's the person who you need to talk to who can fix something. When we take our needs to the Lord, we rightly recognize that he is the one who has sovereign power over all things. When we take our need to the Lord, rather than just trying to figure out a solution by ourselves, we recognize rightly that we are daily dependent, daily needy upon his grace for every good thing. When we take our wants, when we take our needs to the Lord, we recognize that life is about more than our circumstances and navigating things that might be clear or unclear, that there is uh, a spiritual aspect, that this is a spiritual journey, that life is primarily a spiritual battle. And so we go to the one who has spiritual authority Last, when we come to him, we recognize rightly that he is who he said he is, and he thinks about us the way that he says he thinks about us. Some of you have had a friend confide in you, and it's so meaningful when that happens because what they're saying to you is they trust you enough to bring something that it might be ashamed of, embarrassed of, or hiding from others. They trust you enough to to bring that to them. They know your heart. They trust your intent. They trust your character. They trust that you care about them. They trust your motives, that you want to do what is good for them, that not what is bad for them. They trust that you're going to take what they've shared and you're not going to uh, make them suffer for it or tell everyone else about it or um, judge them for it. And so that means something special. When we bring our needs to the Lord, it shows that in our heart we believe he is who he said he is and he does for us what he says he will do for us. Um, Remember how Jesus has uh, already talked to his followers in this sermon about prayer? Uh, And as we lay these two texts together, Jesus here saying, ask and you will receive. And in Matthew 6, Jesus giving them instruction on how to pray. It comes a little bit clearer what this looks like in action. Uh, Matthew 6, 9, for example, Jesus says, pray, hallowed be your name. And so we're instructed to pray, hallowed, great worship glory, praise to your name. Why might we be instructed to pray that way? Possibly because we have a perpetual predisposition to try to uh, protect 
promote, uh, preserve ourselves, make much of ourselves, not much of him. And so he wants to sustain us to keep our eyes focused on him. And kind of like uh, someone texting and driving, when you take your eyes off the road, you end up in the ditch. And so he says, pray, hallowed be your name. Uh, When you add that here with Matthew 7, he wants to sustain us. He wants to help us keep our eyes fixed on him in the midst of our circumstances. Him, our source of power in the midst of our circumstances, which often reveal our weakness. The next verse, Matthew 6.10, he says, pray your kingdom come, your will be done. Why would that possibly be necessary? Maybe because around every corner, we're focusing on what we want, our comfort, what we'd like to see happen often above or first over his kingdom come. He wants to sustain us to keep our eyes focused on our purpose in the midst of our circumstances. Ask and you will receive. Matthew 6.11, he says, pray for your daily bread. Do you know that you have a father who wants to sustain you? You have a father who cares about the nitty-gritty details of your life. No detail is too small as evidenced by something as insignificant as our daily bread. Matthew 6.13, Jesus says, pray, deliver us from evil. Why? Because every day we are tempted by evil and we want deliverance from it. And so uh, in our effort to gain freedom from it, gain deliverance of it, we'll do so much in our own strength. Jesus says, ask. You have a father who gives generously all good things. Why would you try to overcome evil on your own? Why wouldn't you be taking that before the Lord every day over and over? And so we've just got to see that Prayer is not some sort of spiritual exercise that we do before we go and do actually something useful. Prayer is not just a spiritual exercise that precedes us going and doing something uh, that is useful. Prayer is a means by which the Father gives us everything we need for life and godliness. Jesus is making the point that prayer to the Father is effective. Uh, The next point this morning, uh, Jesus walks down this road. Here's the tools you need. I have them, Jesus says. You don't go to the Father. You don't have them. You need him. Go to the Father. Reminds his followers of this often. Um, How do we know we're making progress on this journey with God? Point number two is our journey with God changes our attitude towards others. Let me read uh, verse 12. This journey with God, it changes our attitude towards others. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also for the, to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. If you reread Matthew 5 through 7 on your own, what you're going to see is that at virtually every twist and turn in the text, at every point in this sermon, what Jesus is saying directly applies to how we treat others such to say that we cannot have a right vertical relationship with God and a pattern of fractured and broken relationships with people around us. They are linked Our relationship with him transforms our relationship with others. And so that's how he's able to say, I can summarize the whole law in treat your neighbor with love. Love your neighbor as yourself. You can't drink deeply of God's love for you and not want to give it to others. You can't know 
your sin, know where you were before him, receive mercy, and not want everyone around you to receive mercy. Uh, I'm going to get to start coaching uh, Ian's basketball team in January. Third and fourth graders uh, should be a hoot. Um, uh, so I won't have a voice for the next two months. Um, but we're going to do a lot of talking about teammates and how to treat a teammate and what does it mean to be part of a team. And the reason we're going to do that is because you can't win without teammates. If you really care about doing well, if you care about succeeding, if you care about winning, you absolutely must care about your teammates. You absolutely must know how to be a good teammate and help get the best out of your teammates. Jesus says, you care about me at all, you will care about others. They're linked. How do you know if you're making progress on this journey with God? Uh, Is life with God leading you to love others well? Uh, Maybe even just take this morning, uh, for instance. uh, Did we walk in today asking the Lord to put us somewhere to minister to someone in a unique and special way? Did we come in this morning, even just a gathering, prayerful, maybe about difficult circumstances that we know are going on in each other's lives? There's no shortage of those circumstances. Or was maybe our attitude, I hope they play uh, the songs that I like, or I hope the pastor says something funny, because he usually doesn't, and maybe today I'll get lucky. I hope it doesn't go long. I'm starving. Is life with God leading you to love others well, or you find yourself perpetually consumed with what's going on in your life? What do you need? What do you deserve? What do you have that you don't want? What do you want that you don't have? Is life with God leading you to love others well? We said a few weeks ago that it's possible that we are missing cracks in our spiritual foundation that reveal themselves in fractures in our relationships. Uh, with others. Um, Sometimes in talking about loving others, it just feels like this perpetual weight of why does God always push me to the people that I don't like or the person that I disagree with? Um, Why is it always that? And and so what I would say is, again, I, I would want to change our posture and say part of free part of freedom, part of life in God is the invitation empowered because of Jesus, to have right relationships with others. It is an enormous amount of work, and quite honestly, it is a heck of a lot easier just to be a hermit and to stay away and to be distant, Uh, but it is so rich. And and some of you are there right now. Some of you are there right now with uh, other people here or outside of here uh, where they're speaking truth into your life. You're a source of grace uh, for them. They're available to you in your moment of need or maybe you get to be there to them in their moment of need and it is one of the sweetest things to watch and it's one of the cool things about watching after service some of the things that happen out in the lobby or some of the things that happen in here you might see groups of people clustering to pray it is it is so good when it's right but it's only right when our hearts are right with the lord loving god leads to loving others well all right, let's, let's get to the bulk of the passage now. Uh, third point this morning is our journey with God is about his kingdom, not our empire. Uh, his kingdom, Matthew five sixteen, letting our light shine among men that they may see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. 
his kingdom and not our empire. Another theme that runs, another thread that runs from beginning to end through this message. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, remember the Beatitudes, it's this constant pushing on you don't need to defend for yourself you don't need to fight for yourself you don't need to seize everything you want in life sit back let go let god trust him do it his way this is what life in the kingdom is like so our third point this morning our journey with god is about his kingdom not our empires Uh, let's read verses uh, 13 through 14 jesus is going to compare a narrow gate and a wide gate a narrow road and a wide road two paths you can only be on one one leads to life, one leads to destruction. Matthew 7, 13 and 14 says this, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Okay, narrow gate, uh, hard to find. It's initially less attractive than the wide gate. The end of verse 14, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Not only is the narrow gate, the path to life, initially less attractive than the wide gate that leads to destruction, it's also the road less traveled. It's like driving through town on Sunday morning. You, you never have to stop at a stoplight. There's never cars in your way. You can go anywhere you want as fast as you possibly can drive because there's no one on the road on Sunday morning. The road to life is the road less traveled. Uh, how could that be? How could it be that the path to life is less attractive initially than the path that leads to destruction? Think about some of the things that, that uh, Jesus uh, shares with us, or instructs with us, asks of us, requires of us. Um, first of all, how many of you uh, are okay admitting when you're wrong? You don't have to raise your hand. If you do, you might get an elbow if you're sitting next to someone of the opposite gender who knows you well, possibly. Maybe. Not many of us are okay being wrong. We're not going to do a social experiment here and talk about men with directions and things like that. Suffice to say, not many of us are quick to admit that we're wrong, uh, and many of you are handy. This is, I, I've never been anywhere where people are more handy, skilled at more things than you all. We don't like to admit when things are broken that they're broken, and we don't like to admit when things are broken that we can't fix them. We can do anything. We can build anything. We can solve anything. We don't like to admit when things are broken, especially if it's us, and we really don't like to admit that things are broken that we can't fix. And what does Romans 3.23, what does Paul say all throughout the book of Romans? For the wages of sin is death. You're broken. I'm broken. We're broken. What does Romans 6.23 say? First is the wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. The other one is for all have sinned. We're all broken. We're all under judgment. We can't fix it. That's not a message that anybody likes to hear. That's certainly not a message that those outside the family of faith want to hear. That, that usually comes with some sort of how dare you say that, that I'm broken. How dare you uh, say that? And, and so... Um, why is the narrow gate less attractive initially? requires us to admit what is wrong. We'd like to think that we're just spiritually sick and with a little bit of uh, diet and exercise or just taking a load off for a week and sitting in front of the TV on the couch, drinking a lot of water and orange juice, we'll get better. But if we look around at the world, isn't it clear that the world is not just spiritually sick, that it's spiritually dead? Isn't it 
clear to us when we look around that it's not just off kilter a little bit. It's going in the opposite, the wrong, objectively, the wrong direction. And, and so part of the reason why that door is unattractive initially is that we have to admit some things about ourselves that are really hard to deal with, and we've got a lot of pride built up, right? We've done a lot of good things that we're proud of. We've made a tremendous effort to be good people. requires us to believe what God says about us is true. Um, and then some of you are familiar with, with what Jesus says all throughout the Bible about the cost of discipleship. Um, Luke 14 is a great place to go to see what does Jesus say about what does it take to follow him. And it kind of makes me think about marriage. You know, when you, when you get married, your spouse becomes your primary responsibility. Your spouse becomes primary. Your siblings, secondary. Your spouse becomes primary. Other family members, other friends, uh, uh, secondary. And, and so with Jesus, it's no different. But he, even more than that, he says, to, to follow me, I become number one. To follow me, I become primary. And by comparison, everything else is secondary. He says that in Luke uh, 14, 25, and 26. I'll, I'll read it to you. Uh, great crowds, it said, accompanied him, and, and he turned and he said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and his own mother and his wife and his children and his brothers and his sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. You can imagine Jesus' publicist or his PR rep saying, Jesus, tone it down. Like that, that, That's too much. You're driving people away. I thought we were trying to draw a crowd. I thought we were trying to get everyone on, on the ship and on the train and, and let's go. And um, Jesus says, I, I'm not an add-on. I'm not like the fried chicken or mashed potatoes at a buffet. You add that to an already full plate. I'm not a, I'm not a passing fad to follow me. I become primary. I become your primary focus. The very next verse, verse, Luke 14, 27, Jesus says, whoever does not carry their cross cannot be my disciple. What is a cross but an instrument of pain and suffering? What is a cross but for Jesus, a voluntary emblem of personal sacrifice for the greater good? Jesus said, if you don't carry your cross, you can't follow me. Notice what Jesus is not doing. He's not promising to heal all of our sicknesses. He's not promising to ensure that our kids grow up and be happy and healthy and marry wonderful people and have 10 children and provide us with grandchildren. Uh, he's not promising that our home will never be foreclosed upon. He's not promising that our uh, employers will never just arbitrarily fire us for no reason and will be without work uh, and holidays. He's not promising those things. He's saying it is going to be difficult, but he says, I am with you and it's worth it. I am with you and it's worth it. And so that requires us to have this long-term perspective to trust him, especially when what we see around us doesn't add up. And that's part of life. What we see around us, what you see around us for a time will not add up. Many of you feel like a moral minority in life, in the state of Oregon, in our country, in the world at large. And we wonder, why do I constantly feel like I'm going against the grain? Why do I constantly feel like I, I don't fit in? And so really, quite honestly, there's great concern if you don't feel that. There's great concern if you do feel like you fit in. There's great concern if you do feel like you fit in with all of your coworkers. There's great concern if you don't feel like 
maybe uh, entertainment uh, and music and movies and popular culture is becoming increasingly uh, depraved. It should be concerning if that's not something we're feeling because Jesus has just said this is the road less traveled. The broad is the way that leads to destruction. That's where most of the people are. Narrow is the path that leads to life. He tells us that life will be difficult. We're swimming upstream, but it's worth it, and he's with us. He doesn't promise to remove difficulty, but he does promise to redeem difficulty. Because the way is broad that leads to destruction, Jesus speaks to false prophets in the next few verses. I want to read those to you from Matthew 7. Uh, In Jesus' day, prophets, people traveled all over, and they came from town to town and they would come into a public area and they would stand up they were very winsome they were very articulate they were very persuasive and they would uh, speak and uh, take uh, financial offerings of sorts and they would win crowds win cities uh, over to their points of view and so jesus says this is a narrow road you need to understand you're swimming upstream you need to understand that people around you aren't going to understand your life they're not going to agree with the decisions that you make because they're living for a different uh reason they're on a different road Uh, and so jesus says watch out for these uh individuals he's going to call them wolves in sheep's clothing let me read verses 15 to 20 he says beware of false prophets and answering the question who should we listen to Who should we take guidance from? Who should we take instruction from? Jesus says, beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. He says, are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit and the diseased trees bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruit. And and so whenever we see fire in the Bible, we immediately think hell. And whenever we see gathered up, bundled up, and thrown into the fire, we say, oh, my goodness, is Jesus talking about me going to hell? What, what, What is this all about? Jesus is talking about false prophets. Jesus is talking about those who would come and say something different than what he said to lead people astray and jesus says one of the ways you will know them is by watching their life does their life look like scripture does their like life look like jesus's life does their life look like what you read in here and so i hope one of the things we see is if we don't know what's in here we have no tools to discern what is truth we are easily persuaded easily led astray easily uh, distracted it's kind of like if uh, my wife, we've been married for 12 years, not too far from being married for 13 years. And so over 12 years, I've gotten to know her. I know her likes. I know her dislikes. I know her better now than I did 12 years ago. And I will know her better in a year than I do right now. But if you came up to me and you said, do you know that your wife really would love to live in the city? I would say, you're talking about someone else. That's not my wife. I know her. I know that's not true. I know what is true, that she loves living in the country, that she does not want to live in a city because I know her. I know what's true. And because I know what's true, I have the ability to discern what is not true. And so as we know God's word, as we get to know him, we know truth. Because we know him, we can know truth. Because we know truth, we can discern what is not true. You know, one of the things that's interesting about 
uh, sort of the trajectory of culture is there's all of this talk and discussion about young people uh, in those college years and just the difficulty uh, that that is uh, of them trying to discern truth at this really significant and and pivotal moment and there's just a ton of data and research that says this is happening no that's not happening uh, this is happening um, for all of us at every age if we don't know what this says if we don't know the god that it talks about we don't have tools to discern truth last part of this passage is maybe the most well-known um, so jesus says it's not about your empire it's about my kingdom my kingdom says jesus uh, he says um, ask uh, and it will be given to you he says narrow is the road he says watch out for detours on that road sometimes those detours are people um, and then finally jesus answers the question what does a true follower look like? What does a true follower look like? Let's read verses 21 through 29. What does a true follower look like? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, now 2 Corinthians 5.10 says there will come a day when we will have to give an account for our lives for what we've done. Jesus says on that day when you have to give an account, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and many mighty works in your name? The most terrifying verse in the entire Bible, Matthew 7.23, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And so one commentator says, essentially, these people have done everything except what Jesus actually told them to do. And the, the picture that I get is sitting around the dinner table, looking at a child and say, would you please eat your food? The kid eats all of the food that they like on the plate, none of the food that they don't like, and then looks at me and says, aren't you proud? Look what I did. Check that out. No, that's not obeying. That's not even partial obedience because you heard my words. You know what I want. You know what was behind what I want. That I wanted you to eat everything, especially the things that you didn't like. You ate only what you liked, not what you didn't, and somehow feel like now you can stand justified. And isn't that what we do with God when we pick and choose what we want to follow and what we want to dismiss? Don't we do the exact same thing when we compare ourselves to other people instead of his standard don't we do the same thing when we dismiss what he's said there's so much in the sermon on the mount that pokes and prods at every bit of our pride and every stronghold of sin uh, in our lives and so we do the very same thing and jesus says for these people who think that they will one day stand before me and say look at all the religious things we did religious things do not substitute for a relationship with god he says, I will say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. So that may lead some of us to say, uh-oh, is that me? That might lead some of us to say, how would I perform a spiritual audit to see what path I'm on? What indicators might I take note of in my own life 
so that I could say, okay, I, I think I'm where I need to be. I think I'm saying, professing that I follow Jesus, and I think my life is, is demonstrating that. And so Jesus gets into this really cool word picture of uh, verses 24, and the man who builds a house on the rock, uh, here, here goes, um, 724, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew, beat on the house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built the house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat the house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And great was the fall. Jesus likens a, a person who hears these words and puts them into action as someone who builds their house on the rock. And when the rain comes, the house stands. Someone who doesn't hear his words, who, who hears his words and doesn't put them into action. It's like someone who builds their house on the sand. The rain comes, the storm comes, the house gets bowled over. Uh, my guess is that both the one who built their house on the rock and the one who built their house on the sand both thought they were ready for the storm, and one is going to find out that he's not. And so there is this reality here that Jesus speaks of, that there will come a point when life is going to punch you in the soul. There will come a point when life is going to punch you in the soul, and you are going to find out where your foundation is. The man whose house was built on the sand is not ready for the storm, probably thinks that he's ready. And Jesus says, it doesn't matter what you say. It doesn't matter that you claimed to be a Christ follower. It doesn't matter that you agreed with Scripture. It doesn't matter that you said, I believe in God. It doesn't matter that you said, I'm a part of that church. It doesn't matter that you say, my parents were Christians. He's going to say, what did you do with my words? What did you do with my words? It makes me think of a, of a father uh, with a daughter, and maybe some of you that have had daughters uh, get married, quite honestly, one of the most dreadful things for me personally uh, to think about scares me to death, but it will happen one day, and I'll praise the Lord for it. But maybe your daughter brought a first serious boyfriend home. And so you're, you're watching, right? You're watching, how does this guy treat my daughter? Uh, does he open the door for her? Uh, is he interested in things she's interested in? Like, does he take an interest in her, what she likes, what she does? Does he know her? Does she know the way that she's wired? Is he learning her? Does he take any spiritual interest? Like, is it, in some way, is he initiating spiritual conversations that lead to their relationship, having Christ at the center of it? Is he doing those things? Not what does he say. Is he doing those things? And so if my daughter comes to me and says, oh, he says he loves me, and she wilts, but he's not doing those things, what, is, what am I going to tell her? If he says he loves you, but he doesn't do those things, he doesn't love you, right? Because it matters what you do. It doesn't matter what you say. What you do matters more than what you say. Jesus says, if you said I'm a Christian, if you said I agree with Scripture, if you made a verbal profession that you did not put these words of mine into action, you're like a man who builds his house on the sand. And when the storm comes, the house is washed away. Uh, as we wrap up this morning, it's fitting that Jesus ends with a storm. That's 
fairly relevant to Roseburg life. We had one of those this year. Um, Some of you thought you were ready for the storm, right? Maybe you owned a generator. Maybe you had a plan in place. Some of you thought you were ready, and then you realized that you weren't. Uh, Maybe your generator was out of gas. Maybe your propane tank uh, was 95% empty. Uh, Maybe your water and food had grown old and and moldy that you had had set aside. Some of you thought you had a plan and discovered that you weren't as ready as you thought. Others of you realized, oh my, we have no plan. (laughs) And that was crystal clear because you were freezing cold. You didn't have any of the things that you needed. Maybe you freaked out or legitimately should have because you were in trouble. You were stuck somewhere for a long period of time, couldn't get out, couldn't get help, couldn't communicate, didn't have a plan, didn't know what you were going to do, didn't know where you were going to go, didn't have anyone checking uh, in on you. Some of us thought we had a plan, realized it was not a good plan. Some of us realized we had no plan at all. As we think about the reality that Jesus says, it doesn't It matters more what you do than what you say. Your actions, putting his words into action, are what mark the life of an authentic follower of Christ. My question for you would be, what is your spiritual plan for when the storm comes? Do you have a plan? Is it a good plan? How will you know if it's a good plan? Does your life look like scripture? Does your life look like Jesus? Are you putting his words into action? And so that's one of the things that makes this whole sermon so beautiful is Jesus is talking about right actions and right motives, right actions and a right heart from beginning to end, which makes most of us feel like this is impossible. And Jesus says, yes, you're right. It is impossible because the best of you at your peak level of spiritual performance can't do it without me. Jesus says, ask. Prayer is effective. Your heavenly Father gives generously. If you being evil know how to give give good gifts. Some of you bought some really cool things for a spouse, for your kids for Christmas. Jesus says, if you being evil know how to give good things, how much more does your heavenly Father know to give you? What is your plan for the storm? Have you performed a spiritual audit in a while? A storm readiness plan? Your actions are your motives. Are you ready for the storm? Let's pray. Uh, Lord God, we thank you that you, um, just from cover to cover, you remind us that we're worse off than we could ever imagine, but that your plan for us is better than we could ever hope or dream. And, and so pray, I pray, Lord, that, that rather than ever feeling a sense of defeatedness, um, rather than coming away from your scripture and, and feeling uh, the weight of impossible demands, I pray that, that rather that we would see this invitation that, w- that we have to come and to find in you our rest. What a relief it is to know that I don't have to have all the answers. I don't have to figure out Uh, answers to solutions. I don't have to, in my strength, overcome my sin, that I have a Father who gives generously to all who ask of Him, and and that I can come to the Father with all of these things and get all that I need for life and for godliness. 
So, Lord, may we run to you, not from you. May we come to you expectantly, not doubting. May we come to you first, not last. Lord, flip this idea upside down that there's just a bunch of rules and regulations. Give us a sense for the freedom in Christ that Jesus says was made possible here in Matthew because he fulfilled the law and the burdens that we could never live up to. So help us to stop trying to live up to those to earn your favor, Lord, and walk in the freedom that was purchased for us, trusting you for what we need each day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.